0: Jude, and verse 17 is where we pick up today. The title of the message is How to Contend for the Faith. How to Contend for the Faith. Jude 17, and we'll read down through verse 23. The Scripture says, But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual people who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. The structure of this letter by Jude the half brother of Jesus has been pretty straightforward. When we began looking at verses 1 and 2, we see clearly who wrote the letter along with a warm greeting to whom it was written. We move quickly into verses 3 and 4, and we see what the letter is about, why Jude is writing this, the theme of it. And the theme of it is contending for the faith. In fact, you have your Bibles open there. Would you just read that verse with me? Verse number 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the theme of the book. This is why he's writing it. He's writing it so that we, God's people, will contend for the faith, which is to devote our lives to the faith and to defend the faith at all costs. Why? Uh, because he says in verse 4 that there are those who creep into the church unnoticed. These people are unnoticed godly intruders, they are dangerous rebels, they are false teachers, and they creep into the church seeking to destroy and deny the essential truths of the faith. And then we move into verses 5 through 16, which is the lengthier portion of Jude that we have studied together. And in it, Jude gives us some examples of how this has happened before and how to spot it in the church today. So he talked about Israel and their unbelief. He talked about the fallen angels and their rebellion. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and their immorality. He talked about Cain and how that Cain's rebellion was marked by his idea that his way was better than God's way. He talked about Balaam and how Balaam laid aside God's word. He sold out God's word, if you will, for greed and unholy living. And then there was Korah, who Korah's problem was he didn't like the leader that God had chosen in Moses. And so he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to lead the people of God, and so he shows us the rebellion of Korah. And Jude's purpose in all of this was to show us how that all of these people had rebelled against God's word. They had rebelled against God's authority. And as a result, severe judgment was poured out on all their ungodliness. In the same way that severe judgment will be poured out on all ungodly rebellion. And that leads us into verse 17 and through verse 23, which is our text this morning. And he somewhat connects us back to verses 3 and 4. As Jude not only tells us to contend for the faith in verses 3 and 4, but now in verses 17 through 23, he tells us how to contend for the faith. How to contend for the faith. So he's given us these examples in verses 5 through 16. Verses 3 and 4. So he says, I want you to contend for the faith. Devote your lives to the faith. Defend the faith. Because there's ungodly intruders, dangerous rebels, false teachers. Cripping into the big C church, little C church. And they're going to deny the truth of Jesus. They're going to try to destroy what you've been taught as the essential truths of the gospel. And here's how you are to do it. Here's how you are to contend for the faith that has been given to you. Now, it is very important, listen carefully, that we get the how-to right. It is very important that we get the how-to right. For often, those rallying the cry of contend for the faith They do so in such an ugly and abrasive manner that it becomes an endless display of ineffective tirades. And these tirades are led by loud and forceful voices seeking to make themselves heard. But instead... Of successfully defeating error, they rudely repel a lot of people who can't get past their aggressive and unloving speeches. So it's not enough that we just rally the troops together and say, go out and contend for the faith. It's important that we know how God wants us to do this. You see, zeal is good, zeal is good. But zeal is dangerously ungodly when it is fueled by pride, ignorance, and combativeness. It's so important that we understand that. As believers, whether it be in our family relationships, our church relationship, our social media endeavors, Zeal is good, but zeal is dangerously ungodly when it is fueled by pride, ignorance, and a spirit of combativeness. So Jude's how-to of contending for the faith is turned a little bit different than what we would think. In fact, instead of turning it outward, he turns it inward. Inward. In other words, the best way to contend for the faith is not to go and yell at everyone else about how wrong they are, how compromising they are, how foolish they are. Although the Scripture is clear that there is a time and place for confrontation and expulsion. The Bible is very clear about that. That when situations demand it, we need to be willing to stand up and confront the error and expel it out of our institutions. However, Jude says the best way, the best way to contend for the faith is to focus on your own relationship with Christ. On your own relationship with Christ. So let's look at the how too. There's, there's three things I want you to see in these verses 17 through 23. Here's the first one. He tells us in verses 17 through 19 that we need to remember what we've been taught. If we're going to contend for the faith in a faithful way, we've got to remember what we've been taught. Look at it there in verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says remember what you've been taught, specifically to Things. We find them in verse 18. He says, The first thing I want you to remember is that we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Verse 18 says, Remember how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time. And these mockers are going to walk according to their own ungodly lust. So let's back up here in our understanding of the last days. The last time, the Bible teaches us that there is a period of time between the first coming of Christ which is when he came as a baby born in Bethlehem. There is a period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And that period of time between the first coming and the second coming is known as the last days, or what Jude calls here the last time. So when the Bible tells us what to expect in the last days, He's not necessarily referring to the final weeks or months before Christ's return. It's the things that are going to mark an entire period of time, a distinct period of time, in which Christians are waiting and have been waiting for 2,000 years. And what is it that we are waiting on? We are waiting for Christ to come again. The last days have been the last days for 2,000 years. So he reminds us, you're living in the last days. You're living in that distinct period of time where some unique things are going to happen before the coming of Christ or leading up to the coming of Christ. And one of those marks of the last days is that ungodly rebels will be present in the church causing division. So he's causing us to remember a couple of things. The first thing he wants us to remember, we're living in the last days. The second thing he wants us to remember is that in the last days, ungodly rebels will be present in the church causing divisions. Look at verse 18. They told you that there would be mockers who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual people who cause divisions not having the spirit. So in our understanding of how to contend for the faith, Jude is not telling us anything new. He's simply summarizing an alarm that the apostles have been sounding frequently since the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is false teachers, ungodly intruders, dangerous rebels will be present in the church causing problems in the last days. Paul spoke about this in Acts chapter 20 when he said, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, they will arise from yourself. They're going to come from the outside. They're going to come from the inside. And they're going to rise up speaking perverse things against the gospel, perverse things against the essential truths of the faith. And their purpose is to draw people, draw away disciples after them. Paul, speaking of the apostles who warned us about these things, Paul warned us about this. Peter warned us about this. John warned, this, warned us about this. Even Jesus himself. Even Jesus himself warned us about the Pharisees and the false prophets. And Jude is warning us again. So we cannot forget this. We cannot We must remember at all times that in the last days there will be rebels causing division in the Lord's church. It's fascinating when you think about how he breaks this down in verse number 19. Look at these phrases for a moment. He says that these mockers, these rebels, they're going to cause divisions. Divisions. In the Greek, it's a a present participle. That phrase, calls division, which means they habitually cause problems, okay? These are not isolated events. These are people who are always causing problems, always causing divisions. They are at the epicenter of disagreement and contention. Instead of being a source of unity, they are a source of hostility, They're not peacemakers. They're not bridge builders. They're community destroyers. They are always causing divisions. And why is this an ongoing characteristic about them? Look at the first phrase. It's because they are sensual people. They are habitually causing division and problems because they are sensual people. That means they are worldly people. Worldly people who are not controlled by the Spirit of God. They are worldly people who are controlled by their sinful flesh. They're causing problems because they're acting and reacting on the basis of themselves. I like J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of this. Listen to how he puts it. These are the men who split churches, for they are led by human emotions. It's a good way of putting it. Worldly, sensual people constantly cause division in the Lord's work because they are led by their own emotions. They are led by their own feelings. They are led by their flesh. And one of the major reasons that we see this happening is the last phrase of verse 19. It's because they do not have the Spirit of God. Now, this is a strong indictment. Because listen carefully. If a person does not have the Spirit, he is not a believer. Romans chapter 8 is very clear about that. He that who... He that does not have the Spirit of God is not of Christ, is not of Christ. So the sad reality is that many in the church today who call so much turmoil against God's people and His Word are those who are physically alive, but they are spiritually dead. I was talking to a friend of mine just this week, and we were doing some counseling and praying to God. Uh, together on behalf of his particular ministry and just just a whole bunch of nonsense and mess and carnality and sin and a lot of Korah and Balaam and Cain going on. In fact, I told him, I said, what's happening, as you're telling me, is the book of Jude right there in your midst. And we both commented on the fact that the reason why so many churches and places of ministry are marked by these things is because large in part the people who sit in the pews week after week and even have united in membership are people who have never been born again by the Spirit of God. So they operate on the basis of the flesh. They think on the basis of the flesh. They respond on the basis of the flesh. Everything they do is controlled by their own self-interest and emotions and not by the leading of God's Word and His Spirit. So He wants us to remember these things. Remember that in the last days, expect ungodly rebels to be present in the church causing divisions. So we go back to the question, how do we contend for the faith? Well, we first need to be reminded of what we've been taught. These are the last days, and in the last days, ungodly rebels in the church will cause an array of conflict. And that should not surprise us. should not surprise us. Okay, here's the second thing he tells us to do as it relates to how to contend for the faith. And that is keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. It brings us to verses 20 and 21, and these verses are the climax of the letter. This is the anthem of Jude's sermon. Look at it, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for mercy, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Again, let's go back to the question. How do we contend for the faith? Well... By keeping ourselves in the love of God. That's the answer. We contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. Well, pastor, what about all those other things we are told to do in these verses? Just building yourself up, praying in the Spirit, looking for the mercy of Jesus. Well, it's a matter of Greek grammar. Because the word keep here is the only word that appears as an imperative. In other words, it's the only command that Jude actually gives in verses 20 and 21. The other things that he mentions are not commands. They are participles. Meaning that grammatically speaking, they are dependent on the imperative. And the imperative is the phrase, keep yourself. Keep yourself in the love of God. So, due to the grammar of the text, and this is how we interpret the Bible, we interpret the Bible in a historical grammatical context, it's not a full-fledged allegory where we pull anything and everything out of it to make it say what we wanted to say. No, we need to interpret it the way that God gave it to us. Say what God said. And what God says here, due to the grammar of the text, is that in order to contend for the faith, we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's the command. That's the imperative. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now, this can potentially create some confusion because doesn't the Scripture say that absolutely nothing can separate us as God's people from God's love? Well, yes, it does say that. God's love toward us is fixed. It is fixed. And nothing, listen to me carefully, absolutely nothing can change that. So there's two things to consider with this command to keep yourself in the love of God. And the first thing to consider is the possibility that you and I can position ourselves outside of the love of God. So so here's what we need to understand. Be careful that you do not position yourself by disobedience outside the blessings of God's love. Be careful that you do not position yourself outside the blessings of God's love. That it's possible that by our ignoring of the Spirit, our disobedience to God's Word, that we put ourselves outside of the blessings of His love, and then invite painful chastisement into our life. So be careful. If you're going to keep yourself in the love of God, that you do not, by disobedience, by disobedience, position yourself outside of the blessings of his love. You'll never be positioned outside of his love. But we can be positioned outside of the blessings of his love. Okay, here's the second thing that we need to consider. And that is we need to be grounded. When he says keep yourself in the love of God, keep yourself in the love of God, it means be grounded in your understanding of God's love for you. Be grounded in your understanding of God's love for you so that you can grow in your love for him. We stand in front of the marriage altar and we say to one another, I will keep myself unto her as long as we both shall live. I am committing myself to be grounded in her love because of her love for me and vice versa. It's the the same idea here. As we are grounded in our understanding of how much God loves us, then it will help us to grow in our love for him. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Well, how do we do that? That's where the participles come into play. And there's three of them. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Number one, by building up our faith. By building up our faith. Verse 20, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. In other words, you've come to faith in Christ. It's now time to build up your faith in Christ. It's time to build it up. This is immensely important if indeed we are going to contend for the essential truths of the gospel. And there is no better way to do this than to spend more time studying God's word. Listen to me, church. Without the Bible, there is no building up of faith. You don't grow in your relationship with Christ outside of a commitment to spend time in his word. Think of it. If we're going to be grounded in our understanding of God's love so that we can grow in our love for Him, then we need to know, study, and immerse ourselves in the love letter. Do you read your Bible? Believer, is the worldliness... The fleshliness, the conflict surrounding your life, is it the result of not building your faith? Sometimes even technology and all of its blessings can be a means of pouring water on what we're actually supposed to do. We have our little app and it pops up on the screen, verse of the day. We take the verse of the day, we copy it, we post it on social media. There's our verse of the day, and we go on doing our thing. You're like going to your spouse and saying, "Give me a word for the day," and that's it. That's all. Just a word for the day. I don't want to hear nothing else from you. Just a word for the day. And <laughs> yeah, that's not going to fly too well. There's no building up of this after 18 years of marriage. Unless we spend a whole lot of time together. A whole lot of time together. Do you read your Bible? Do you study your Bible? I mean, study it. Do you read it with your children? Pastor, I was hoping for a Father's Day message. Well, don't get more clear than this for dads. This is what we need more than anything else right here. Build up your faith, Dad. Read your Bible, Dad. Memorize the Word, Dad. Every decision you make in life, every decision you make in life, show your family, we're doing this because the Bible is leading us to do this. And that building, that building up of faith, it's a lifelong activity. It's a lifelong activity. Because again, the Greek word here for building, it means to keep on building Keep on building. You don't build it when you were young in Awana and then slack off from there. No, you get out of Awana and you keep on building it. You get out of the teen department and you keep on building it. And you really go to work in your college years. Because that's when the ungodly intruders are going to come like never before. And then you meet the love of your life, and you keep on building it. And then kids come, and a second kid comes, and a third kid comes, and a fourth kid comes. And you just keep on building it and building it and building it. And then you retire, and you don't quit. You get out more tools, and you keep on building, and you keep on building, because we are only going to contend for the faith and keep ourselves in the love of God as we know this book. There's an additional dimension to this that I think is important. Look at what it says. Look at what it says. Build yourselves. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. It's plural. It's plural indicating that this is a corporate activity. It's not a solo job. It's a corporate job. It's only as we come together in a commitment to Christ's truth and Christ's church that we truly begin to experience sincere growth in faith. The first sign that a Christian is in danger of falling away. Listen to me carefully because some of you are on the verge of this and some of them are watching from home that are further away than those you are here. The first sign that a Christian is in danger of falling away is a tendency to be a loner. Cut off from the sources of encouragement and nurture that God has established in the church. In the church. What he's saying here is you can't build it up by yourself. You need other people in your life who are helping you build it up. a sad reality that those who drift away from the church fellowship often fall into the arms of heretics and rebels. So once again, we're reminded that a churchless Christian in the New Testament does not exist. It does not exist. And Jude warns us about the immense danger of trying to be a solo Christian. You need me and I need you. And together we build each other up. In the faith. Dick Lucas said it like this. I think it's so brilliant. Those British guys are brilliant. (laughs) He's in heaven today. Dick Lucas said, a brick cannot be built into the building unless it's on the building site. Think about it, church family. Think about it. A brick cannot be built into the building unless it's on the building site. And what he's saying here is that to keep ourselves in the love of God, we have to build up our faith, and we got to keep building up our faith, and we got to do it with one another in the fellowship of his glorious church. Amen? Amen, amen? Build up your faith. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. Secondly, pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Very clear, verse 20. Praying in the Holy Spirit. That's the second participle. You say, Pastor, these things are so basic. Yes, because the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Our efforts to contend for the faith are brought back to the basic routines of Christian discipline, building ourselves up in the Word and devoting ourselves to spirit-filled prayer. Now, if you're like me, you find perhaps regular, consistent prayer a challenge. It's okay to admit that, isn't it? I'm admitting it to you. If you're like me, if you're like me, you find consistent, regular prayer a challenge. Because there's always something else I could be doing. Prayer forces us to wait. Prayer forces us to be still. Prayer forces us to be dependent. All of those things that our flesh and emotions fight against, Hudson Taylor, that great missionary to China, acknowledged that Bible reading and prayer was the hardest part of his missionary career. Here's what he said. Satan will always find you something to do, even if it's only arranging a window blind. I've heard Lee Smith, one of our great leaders and elders here in the church, I've heard him say on many occasions, if a headache will keep you out of a church, the devil will give you a headache. We'll do anything he can to keep us from praying. Let's pray more. Let's pray more together. Let's pray more with our families. Let's dedicate more time to personal prayer throughout our day. No individual, no family, no church can successfully contend for the faith if we are not characterized by a prayerful dependence on the Lord. And then he says, number three, be looking and waiting for Jesus. So we're talking about how to keep ourselves in the love of God. we got to build up our faith build up our faith we got to pray in the holy spirit and then we got to keep looking and waiting for jesus verse 21 looking for the mercy of our lord jesus christ unto eternal life this is so important because as christians we pin our entire destiny on the future rather than the present did you get that as christians we pin our entire destiny on the future rather than the present We believe the promise that Jesus Christ gave that he will come again and he will receive us, his people, unto himself. All the nonsense of this present world will one day be supernaturally invaded by the coming of Christ. So so to us who believe in Christ. For those who believe his word, look at me. The future is bright. You may go to the gas tank with a scowl on your face or a murmur in your heart. But the future is bright. The future is bright because we know at any moment and any day, Jesus Christ will come again. The future is bright because we woke up this morning looking for Jesus the future is bright because we're going to go to bed tonight waiting for Jesus. And it's that hope that compels us to keep ourselves in the love of God and contend for the faith that has been delivered deliver us. Yet when we'd rather remain here, when we dread the return of Christ, it's then that our love for God will wane and our potential for being swallowed up by ungodly rebels and heretics will increase. This is how we keep ourselves in the love of God that we can earnestly contend for the faith. Remember, it's not what we boycott. It's not what we protest. It's what we nurture inside of us. It's what we do to us, building ourselves up in faith, praying in the Spirit, looking and waiting for the return of Jesus. And then we close with this one as he says thirdly here. How do we contend for the faith? Remember what you've been taught. Keep yourself in the love of God. And then as we are keeping ourselves in the love of God, number three, help who you can with the gospel. Help who you can with the gospel. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you that these final two verses, verse 22 and verse 23, are some of the most difficult in the Greek text in terms of translation. Translation. Austin is taking a couple of Greek classes right now. I should have consulted with him on his expertise. But I did hear a Greek scholar say. This is a Greek scholar, okay? A scholar, the guys who know these things ins and out. I mean, we we read our Bibles in our English or whatever translation that we speak. The Greek scholars read their Bibles in Greek. I heard one Greek scholar said about these two verses. It is a very difficult piece of Greek, (laughs) which coming from a scholar should only serve to discourage our efforts to fully get it right. The basic meaning is clear, however, but there are some varying translations of certain words and details, so for the honor class students among us who are interested in that kind of thing, then go for it on your own time because that's all I can do today is just acknowledge it. But again, the basic meaning is clear. Here's what he's saying in these two verses. As we contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God, Jude also compels us to help who we can with the gospel. That's the basic meaning. Help who you can with the gospel. And he appears to show us two different types of people who need help with the gospel. And our approach to one group is to be different from how we approach the other group. So There's nothing fancy about this, but I just wrote down in my notes, number one, here's the first group, the doubters, okay, or the confused. Now, that's the first group he talks about in verse 22, and on some have compassion who are making a distinction. The ESV says it, have mercy on those who are doubting, who are doubting. The New American Standard Bible says, have mercy on those who are doubting, most uh, updated translations help us to see this a little bit more clearly. Some have compassion who are making a distinction, who are trying to determine the difference between what they're being taught and understood. They're, they're doubting, they're doubting, they're struggling, perhaps even weighing the evidence. They're, they're caught between two distinctions and they're laying it all out for them to understand. So, so maybe they're struggling with assurance, Is that you this morning? Maybe they're struggling with portions of the Bible that they're having a hard time making sense of. Maybe they're asking a lot of questions. They're confused. They're unsure. It is to these doubters, these who are confused, Jude says to them, patiently and gently share the gospel with them. Patiently and gently share the gospel with them. Let compassion lead the way in our witness. We don't beat people into the kingdom of God. We don't deceive people into the kingdom of God. We don't berate people into the kingdom of God. He says, to those in your family, to those in your church, to those you work with, they're, they're trying to figure it all out. They doubt. They're confused. You be patient with them, and you be gentle with them as you regularly share with them the gospel of Jesus. Don't be harsh, dismissive, unkind. Don't reject them because they haven't came to the conclusions you have yet. Be patient. Be patient. Be be gentle. Right? So there's, there's the first group. On some, some, these people are trying to make a distinction between what's right, what's not. They're, they're trying to figure it all out. They're doubting. They're confused. They're searching. They're trying. On those, you make sure that when you share the gospel with them, you're patient and you're gentle. It's not a directive to go soft on the gospel, by the way, it's a directive to be known by our love. To be known by our gentleness as we share the gospel with people. Paul said in Timothy, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. He must be gentle. He must in humility correct those who are in opposition. For as he does, God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. That's what we're praying for, isn't it? We are praying for that with your children, with your grandchildren, with those you work with, with your mom and dad. You're praying, you're praying that God would help them to come to faith in Him. And so, how do we do that? We got to share the gospel with them, but we got to share it the right way, patiently and gently. But then there's another group here. I I called the first group the doubters. I called the other group because I couldn't come up with anything else the others. (laughs) The others. (laughs) And and for you early 2000s people, uh, the show Lost is the first thing that probably comes to mind, right? The others. Or, or, Or the endangered. Verse 23, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So what I believe Jude is saying here is that the second group, they're not doubting. They're on the verge of being damned. Perhaps in their minds, they're already convinced that the false teaching they've heard is true. Or maybe they've willfully rejected the invitation of the gospel over and over again, choosing their own sin over a life of grace in Christ. The picture of verse 23 is that they are so close to the fires of hell, if we could see how close they were, it would do something within us. It's as if they are already there. And as believers, he said, we need to see this about them again and again. And what is our response to be as we see this? Well, with courage and caution, we're to do what we can to pull them out of the fire with urgency in Christ it's as if they're already there it's as if they're already there and as a brave hero firefighter would strap on his stuff and go into the flames and rescue who he can that is the language that we're being given here courage and caution. Caution I don't have time to get into the caution aspect of this, but he says we need to hate even the garment defiled by the flesh. He said, "Be careful that you don't get too close, in other words, because sin and leaven has an easy way of rubbing off on us all. I don't have time to go there, but I do want you to know that it is estimated that 157,690 people die lost every day. Every day. 157,690 people die lost every day. Some of you think the biggest problem in the world right now is who's in the White House. Some of you think the biggest problem in the world right now is what's going on in foreign conflicts? Let me tell you what the biggest problem in the world is right now. It's the biggest problem in this room. Lostness. Lostness. People who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ is as if they are in the flames of hell as they sit here living and breathing. You know why your biggest problem is lostness? Because when you die, all your other problems go away. You got financial debt? Don't worry. When you die, it's gone. Got family issues? That's okay. When you die, you don't have to deal with it anymore. This policy, that policy, conflict in the world. Hey, every problem you have goes away when you die except for your problem of lostness. That problem you take with you. And you take it with you forever. Your biggest problem today is lostness, And your only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about how good you can be. None of us are good enough. It's not about your intellect. It's not about getting things cleaned up in your life first. No, you come to Jesus and let Him do all of that for you. You put your faith in Christ and let Him cleanse you. You know why? Because it is still possible for people in peril, for people who are hanging over the fires of hell this morning, it is still possible for those people to escape God's judgment and to be pulled from the fires of hell. Because there is no person so irredeemably bad that God's forgiveness cannot remove their sin. What are we doing about it, Christians? I'm trying my best as I preach this message to you who are sitting here lost this morning. I'm trying my best to ask you to grab my hand and come with me to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, your only hope. But many of us have lost mommies and daddies that we haven't even said a word to about the gospel. Kids that we hope just figure it out, but we've never sat down with them and said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in Christ? We're going to contend for the faith. We have to help others know the gospel. That's the solution. Not how much we can boycott. Not how much we can picket. Not who we vote here and vote there. The solution is, get the gospel out to the world before it's everlasting too late. Because if the gospel changed you, it can change anybody. This is what Jude tells us to do in order to contend not grab your war paint and your weapons and go let those who are different hear anything and everything that comes from your mind. No, he says stop and look inward. Remember what you've been taught. Keep yourself in the love of God and do whatever you can to help who you can the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God help us to earnestly contend for the faith. And if you're here this morning, may God help you to step out of lostness into the light of Jesus Christ through faith in Him. Let's bow our heads together for prayer.